What a beautiful African-American spiritual. There's a balm in Gilead. I want to ask you to repeat that after me, please. There is a balm in Gilead to make the wounded whole. There is a balm in Gilead to heal the sin-sick soul. Let's pray. God of grace and mercy and everlasting love, that is our affirmation this evening, that there is a balm in Gilead, and there is a balm in this place now. Amen. Well, I must confess that I do have the urge to wish you all a happy Ash Wednesday, but I know that will make many of you very uncomfortable, because traditionally tonight is a, uh, a, we have a more somber tone. It's not meant to be morbid, morbid Ash Wednesday or even Lent, but a little somber, but it turns out for a lot of people, Lent can be sort of very mournful, almost like a funeral. And for many of us, that's very true, because we can sense it. And you all probably know what I mean. There are many of you here now who are mourning the fact that you will not be eating chocolate for the next 40 days. <laughs> You're already pain. There's pain in your heart about not having chocolate or Cokes or red meat or alcohol or who knows what else. But the truth is, many of us fast just to fast without really thinking about the spiritual significance of our spiritual disciplines. Lent is a period of fasting, but it's also marked with a period of repentance, mourning, and self-reflection. In the Hebrew Bible, in the Old Testament, prophets would protest the social injustices in society. Things like not taking care of the poor. Things like treating orphans and widows like they were worthless scum. Things like neglecting and ignoring the most marginalized folks in society. These prophets would protest these social evils by publicly fasting and publicly mourning. Prophets like Daniel, and especially Jeremiah, would wail out in public, Help us, O God. Forgive us, O God. Is there no balm in Gilead? They would cover themselves in sackcloth, this sort of coarse fabric made of goat's hair. They would also cover themselves in ashes, not only to symbolize repentance on behalf of the people, but to encourage people to repent. Some people would even shave their heads. How many of you are going to shave your heads for Lent? Anyone? <laughs> for some of us, it's Lent all year round, right? <laughs> I've always wanted to shave my head, but uh, as my partner says, my regal nose doesn't lend itself to having a shaved head. <laughs> I'm pushing it now with his haircuts. But people would shave their heads and they would cover themselves in ashes. And they did these things to represent that they were serious about reconciling with God and with one another. Now, of course, these were very public spectacles out in the streets and in the city centers. There was nothing secret about them. So what do we then make of today's gospel reading, where we see Jesus being critical of such public displays of faith in one's spirituality? What is Jesus talking about when he says, fast in secret, and please do not look depressed when you fast? Newsflash, sackcloth, ashes, shaved head. It's hard to not look a little sad, Jesus. <laughs> And at first glance, there seems to be a little disconnect, right, between what Jesus is saying and what has been a long-standing tradition. But there's more to the story than just this. 
you should know there's always more to the story. It's like when uh, some of our friends who are couples who've been together for five, ten years, and you see one of them on the street and you ask, oh, how's your partner doing? And they say, oh, well, it just didn't work out. You know, we're not together anymore. And they want to just walk off. And what do you say? Really? I know there's more to the story than this, right? <laughs> Every time we come to a passage of Scripture, we read it first, but we should always ask ourselves, tell ourselves, come on, I know there's more to the story than this. And that more to the story is that in the first century, in the time of Jesus, there were certain religious groups, like the Pharisees, who we learned about last week from Reverend Harry, who were emphasizing that there were certain religious rituals that they liked to do on a more regular basis. And one of these was personal fasting on two days of the week, every week. Now, these are a little hyper-religious folks, are they not? They sort of wore their faith on their sleeves like many people that we know. And you know who they are. They're always praying in public. They're always giving money in public. They're on street corners, handing out, handing out tracts, condemning people, telling them they're going to hell and that they're evil. Well, these Pharisees, Matthew calls them hypocrites. To prove that they are fasting, they would deliberately disfigure their faces to make sure that everyone else saw them. They fasted not out of a pure heart and devotion to God, but only so they could be seen. And Jesus says, since that is your motivation, then your reward is that you have been seen. On the other hand, Jesus says, when you fast... Brush your hair, put some oil on, wash your face, put a little foundation and, and makeup on, look decent and presentable for God's sake. Let your fast be between you and God. Brushing one's hair with oil and washing one's face, many people don't know this, but were actual signs of joy and festivity. There's an irony here. Jesus seems to be saying, we need to add a bit of joy to our fast. And of course, we can easily see why Jesus would downplay this more public, morbid display of fasting. You see, Jesus wasn't a big faster himself. It only happened once in his lifetime, and that's after he was baptized. At the end of his initial 40 days in the wilderness without any food or water, Matthew's story tells us that the devil showed up. And after that, Jesus has had it, and he is not fasting any longer in the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus is done with fasting, and from then on, he focuses on feasting. He goes to weddings, communal meal gatherings. He has drinks with people, even disreputable pe people. He's accused of being a drunk. Later in Matthew's gospel, there are other disciples from other groups who are seeing Jesus and his disciples and noticing that all they do is or feast and they're saying, we all fast, you're holy people, why aren't you fasting? And Jesus says, when I'm gone, the disciples can fast all they want. But as long as I'm here, we're going to feast, feast, feast. And people of God, I wonder today, if we're able to take the example of Jesus seriously, especially if we truly believe that Jesus' presence still lives with us, if we do believe that somehow Jesus just didn't stay dead, that he was resurrected and that he still lives on today, then for this Lenten season, we are challenged to add a bit of joy to our Lenten discipline. We are challenged to feast even as we fast. 
Oh, it sounds so confusing though, doesn't it? The tension, the liminal space of embracing both feast and fast, it's uncomfortable, we don't like it. How in the world do we go about feasting when we're trying to fast? Well, one approach that we can actually take is being modeled in our Lenten Connection groups. Starting next Wednesday, our theme for the groups is fasting on the negative and feasting on the positive. And we are focusing on the true intention of Lent, which is to critically reflect on our lives and to fast from everything that keeps us from realizing our God-given potential and from experiencing God within us. And I'm sorry to say that we aren't asking people to give up chocolate or Dr. Pepper or Shipley's Donuts. That's my Sunday breakfast. I wouldn't do that. We're not even asking people to give up cigarettes. Now, you might still want to give up those things because your doctor might be asking those things of you. Absolutely. But instead of just treating our Lenten disciplines like they're somehow New Year's resolutions, in our groups, we are going deeper so we can keep a true Lent. For Lent, we are diving into the Bible and taking a critical look at scriptures that might be encouraging for some and a little uncomfortable for others. We are using Robert Holman's book, Happiness Now, and we are diving into our own sacred human journeys and minds and looking at what beliefs, what thoughts about ourselves are encouraging and which are humiliating and keeping us from seeing ourselves as God sees us. Now, what we are doing isn't anything new. We Christians have always had to wrestle with books, especially our sacred scriptures. Now, knowing that the Bible isn't one book, but a collection of books written by many authors, some known, the vast majority unknown, we do not worship the Bible because, according to Deuteronomy 4.15, that would make it an idol. It is a source of faith for us, and we use it to guide us on our spiritual journeys. And because it is a guide, we are continually compelled to reflect on our evolving beliefs about what God is doing in our lives. And so we are forced to wrestle with things like ungodly genocide in 1 Samuel. We are forced to wrestle with things like God condoning the horrible killing of innocent children in Psalm 137. We are forced to wrestle with things like provocative sensuality in the Song of Solomon. We are forced to wrestle with things like the brutal rape of Tamar and numerous other women who are unnamed. And then there's the obvious issue of slavery. Ephesians, Colossians, 1 Timothy, they all tell slaves to obey their masters, and even according to the book of Philemon, the apostle Paul himself sends a runaway slave, a runaway slave, someone who is almost free, Onesimus, sends him back to his master. How do we deal with this? How did the ex-slaves deal with the Bible? In short, they fasted, from those texts that condone slavery because they were so negative. But they feasted on texts that were more positive, texts that emphasized human liberation. In one of the many post-Civil War collections of ex-slave narratives, there is a story of a former slave who recounted how she was criticized by another former slave for continuing to be a Christian. The former slave who was criticizing her had basically renounced Christianity after he was freed post-Civil War. He found himself no longer able to participate in a religion that kept him enslaved and shackled for most of his life. And he certainly couldn't consider the Bible as the word of God because it condoned slavery. 
And this former slave, this former Christian is pondering, how can all these people still be Christians when Christianity kept you enslaved? And so he goes up to his one friend and he asks her, how can you, a former slave, how can you embrace Christianity when the Bible clearly condones slavery? And you know what she told him? Not my Bible. I tore them pages out. It was her way of saying, I fast from those pages that keep me enslaved, and I feast on the rest, the good, the truly liberating good news. Now let's get real for a moment. This former slave tearing out pages from her Bible does not remove the stain uh, from those Bible passages that they have on our faith history and our legacy. Not, absolutely not. There is no way to erase what Paul said and what biblical authors said about slavery and other unfortunate evils in the name of God. It is not about trying to erase the text from the Bible. No, no, no. It's about removing the power that those unfortunate texts have over us so we can truly experience God in the here and in the now. And so that's why this former slave takes it past these pages of Scripture and looks at that text from Ephesians and sees that it shames her and continues to enslave her. And so what does she do? She rips it out. Pages that didn't affirm her as a liberating child of God like those from Colossians. What does she do? She tears it out. Pages that try to define her by calling her sinful for no reason other than to enslave her. What does she do? She tears them out. That is feasting and fasting at the same time. It is fasting from the negative and feasting on the positive. You see, these violent and self-mortifying texts, these pages are always going to be with us, but we do not have to allow them to define us. And so we are repenting from them. And, you know, to repent is to change. It is to turn from something and toward something else, to change an attitude, a thought, a perception, a plan of action, to make a change, to change one's mind. That is repentance. Just as that former slave repented from letting destructive and ungodly Bible verses define her, this Lent, we are going to be doing the same with some of the destructive pages of our very own lives. As we dig deeper into the pages of our sacred human journeys this Lent, I encourage you to be willing to fast on those tragic pages of your past that you have allowed to define you. I know HIV-positive folks who could not rise from the shame of their initial infection, but over the years they have come to experience a new empowerment, and so now they participate in AIDS walks. They go to things like AIDS rallies to raise money, and they say things to me like, you know what, Reverend Michael, I no longer live with HIV. HIV lives with me. Tearing the page out. I encourage you to fast from those hurting, hurtful experiences that continue to haunt you. I know women who have been raped, and it pains them to read the stories of certain heroes in the Bible, people who we really revere, but we do not know that they seduced and raped other women. But these women, they've come to know 
that there is nothing of a godly example in those passages. There is an example of what God would not do in those passages. I encourage us to fast from those pages of our lives that continue to tell us that we are somehow evil, that we're losers, that we aren't good enough and not worthy of God's unconditional love and liberation. Do we fast from those pages so we can get rid of doubt? Can we fast from those pages so we could get rid of everything that denies us of our God-given potential? I encourage you all to fast from those pages of your life that try to tell you that God is angry at you or has condemned you to hell, but rather feast on those pages of your life that nurture your spiritual health and a positive self-image. Feast on those experiences that awaken your consciousness to see the good inside all people. And feast on those thoughts that affirm not only you as a child of God, but affirm God as a loving parent, mother and father. Fast from all things negative and feast on all things positive. People of God, I truly believe that if we will commit to keeping a true Lent, when struggles and challenges come our way, we will not have to raise our hands and ask, really, is there a bomb in Gilead somewhere? But we will joyfully declare that there is a bomb in Gilead. And we will never have a need to question our oneness with God because we will know that God never left us and God will never leave us because God actually lives inside of us. And once we start repenting and repairing and recommitting and reorienting our personal lives, we will be better suited to help repair and reorient our world. And the good news is this evening is exactly what Jesus is trying to tell us. That this Lent, we can feast even as we fast. Amen. Amen. Thank you.